So um, starting at verse 18, uh, Luke chapter 9. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Some of you know this, uh, but it's, it's just worth saying from the off. We take it really seriously um, to, to raise up new, new leaders of the church because the Bible commands us to. And many of you will know that um, Micah is, is one of three, soon to be two, uh, hopefully, um, uh, candidate elders, uh, which means that um, he is showing all the kind of uh, signs and qualifications of a leader of God's church given to us in, in, in the Word. And one of those is, is being able to teach the Bible. Um, and so it's our great uh, privilege and joy to have Micah preaching um, today, um, and we're going to pray for him now as we seek to kind of fan that gift into flame uh, before he preaches. So let's let's pray for Micah together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the work that you've done in, in Micah's life up until this point. We thank you um, that he is able to, um, uh, and we are able to explore his teaching gifts um, as a church together. We pray, Lord, that that um, that we would be blessed by your word this morning, which is not Micah's word, but it is your word. And we just pray that um, you would enable him um, both today to, to teach your word faithfully and truly, um, and, and, and Father, to go forward handling your word rightly, as the scripture calls us to, and, um, and to grow in this gift as we invest in him as a church. And we pray that all of that glory would not be to Micah, well, they would be to our precious Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Hello. Um, hope, you, hope, hope you're all well. Um, it's good to be here. And like Johnny said, my name is Micah. I've been a part of the church family here for uh, about eight and a half years. In fact, I have the rare privilege of being present at the first ever Gate Church gathering um, all that time ago in 2014. In fact, I wonder if just for a second, you take a trip with me down, down memory lane, just to the first Sunday of September in 2014, and a handful of us, some people here and some people who aren't here anymore, uh, and some friends from our sending church and a couple of people who come in from the local community um, to just to see what we were up to, we gathered together, not very far from here, to worship God and to begin something that we hoped would be used by God to, to bring many people from this area and beyond to trust Jesus. Here we are. Uh, let's see if I can get this slide going. Uh, there we go. Here we are. Don't worry, I didn't get a really young picture of Johnny, but if you, if you slip me a fiver, I'll find that for you. Uh, this is us uh, eight and a half years ago. Um, the one child in that picture is actually 
about to attend university, I believe, uh, which is just a bit mad to me. Um, we, were a, we were a really small group of people, but we had some really big dreams. Uh, we had this strong conviction uh, that God had big plans for this community and that he could really use us, like us, in those plans. Now, fast forward uh, back to the 26th of March, 2023, and I wonder, after having lost an hour's worth of sleep, how you would describe your vision of our life as a church. I wonder how you might describe our dreams for what church life could look like. I wonder what expectations you might have for what God is going to do in this community. And I wonder if for many people, for many of us, that in this season of church life, we might be beginning to hear this kind of nagging voice of cynicism. It's kind of like, why are we actually here? You know, why, why have I maybe up sticks from wherever, wherever I was before, whichever church or town I was before, and moved into this estate? And did we really think we were going to achieve something that big? Did we really think we were going to change the world, starting with Lee Bank? And then when we start asking those questions, we start to realize really quickly that the wisdom of the world is going to give us some really uncomfortable answers. Because after all, we're living in an era when people who would consider themselves Christians are now a minority in this country. And those who continue to follow Jesus today are finding it increasingly difficult to do that. They're finding it increasingly hard to fit their Christian life within a job or a friendship group or a culture that's left Jesus behind. And I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if many of us in this room today were feeling like that cynical voice in some way or another. And Jesus wouldn't be surprised, actually, I think. Because as we arrive in our passage this morning, we've been watching over the last nine chapters this crescendo of popularity for Jesus and his ministry. Uh, two weeks ago, Rich really helpfully uh, taught us about how Jesus had sent his disciples into neighboring towns and villages to proclaim the kingdom and heal the sick. And then last week, Johnny Ivy just casually drops in that Jesus' miracle with the 5,000 is actually Jesus feeding about 15,000 people. Just 15,000. Just put to one side for a minute the miracle that Jesus performs for those people and consider for a second that 15,000 people walked miles into a remote place with no food, no shelter, just to listen to Jesus. You know, apart from all the logistical nightmares of trying to feed them afterwards, the disciples must have, at the beginning, must have been really thinking, you know, maybe we, this is it. Maybe we're onto something here. You know, as Jesus fed all of those people, and as he gave each disciple a basket full of food to take home, they might have been forgiven for feeling a little bit smug, but thinking that they're pretty smart in their choice of leader. Maybe they, they have back the right guy after all. And, and in that context, in light of that interaction with the disciples, it's, it's now that Jesus decides that his disciples really need to understand his ministry right. Jesus knew this about his first followers, but it also rings true for us today, doesn't it? Because to get our ministry right, to get our lives uh, in light of God's work right, we first of all have to get Jesus' ministry right. Now, I think I owe you fair warning. I think we, we are going to see some incredible things in this passage. We're going to see some incredible news. But I also think that there's a really significant challenge for us here. And it can be tempting 
say it, skirt around that challenge. But I think Jesus was fully aware of that temptation when he, when he said these words, because he makes his point painfully clear. And I think that if we listen to Jesus carefully, we're going to hear a hard truth. But I also think that if we face that truth head on, then we're going to be able to see exactly where hope can be found. And as we understand Jesus' ministry properly, it's my prayer that he would turn our thinking upside down about our own ministries so that he would be sustaining us, not just for eight and a half more years, but he would be sustaining us into eternity. Let's get stuck in, shall we? If we uh, take a look at how Luke begins this passage, we can see that Jesus is taking his disciples, his closest friends, to be with him in private. I think there's sometimes a bit of speculation about why Jesus chooses privacy in the Gospels, but there seems to be a hint in this, in this passage that Jesus wants to communicate something really clear and really specific and really important. And he's dead set on his disciples understanding it perfectly. And so his disciples are with him, and he, in sort of conversation, just kind of gestures back to the crowd that they've left behind, and he asks his friends, you know, those people, those people who follow us literally everywhere. Who do they say I am? And this isn't incidental. We can see from the answers that they give, actually, that who they think Jesus is has an impact on why they followed him into a remote desert place. In fact, you might actually recognize the answers that the disciples gave from a few weeks ago in Richard's sermon when Herod gets wind of Jesus. And he asks the same thing about him. Actually, this answer, maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, maybe one of the prophets who'd been raised from the dead, gives us a bit of an insight into how, into how the crowds think about Jesus. Jesus is a big deal. He's, he's a miracle worker. He's a truth teller, a revolutionary preacher. He's, he's, he's someone worth knowing or knowing about. And I think that's a really human response, isn't it? That's a really human response to something exciting. When, when something exciting is happening, or someone exciting shows up, we want to get close to the action. We kind of want to bask in or reflect kind of the glow of that exciting person. But Jesus, he then turns to the people who truly know him. He turns to the, the kind of the day one followers who, who knew about Jesus before he was cool, and he asks them, what about you? Who do you say I am? And the way that Peter responds, the person that Peter understands Jesus to be, tells us why Peter is following Jesus. Peter responds with two words. God's Messiah. And those two words, while pretty innocent and innocuous to us, would have probably made everybody around Peter catch their breath for a moment. You see, the word Messiah, or maybe in some of your Bibles you might see the word Christ, is written all the time in the Bible. We see it throughout the New Testament, and we might get a bit used to it, You'll actually see it in the Old Testament as well. It's a bit more hidden. Um, but but um, I won't bore you with too much detail. You can, you can ask me later if you like. But essentially, Messiah was the word that the Bible used when it was describing God's chosen king. And that's why Peter calls Jesus here God's Messiah. You see, there's, there's a lot of kings in the Bible, isn't there? There's good kings. And there's bad kings described in the Bible. There's pretend kings. And then there's battles decide who actually is king. But the Messiah was God's choice for king. And the word Messiah crops up, like I said, throughout the Bible, but this is the first point so far in the book of Luke that anybody has had the audacity to call Jesus to his face the Messiah. 
And this is really important because under the thumb of Roman oppression and rule, they would have been waiting, waiting for God's choice of king to show up, someone to get behind, someone who would lead them into freedom. In an occupied country, news of a Messiah sounded like news of a revolution. And that means when Peter calls Jesus God's Messiah, Peter is saying something really important about why he's following Jesus and where he would follow Jesus. Peter's saying, you are my king. You're my commander. I would follow you into battle and into victory. And this is why it would have likely been really important to Peter that they, and to the rest of the disciples that they back the right guy, wouldn't it? I mean, they're putting their lives and their liberty on the line when they call Jesus their Messiah. And they wouldn't want to lose, right? And it's at this point that Jesus steps in and he turns their thinking totally around. In a few short sentences, he transforms their thinking about him and about his mission into something that they'd never have expected. The first thing that Jesus does, actually, is he strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Uh, notice that he doesn't actually deny what Peter says. In fact, in other Gospels, he actually praises Peter for getting the answer right. But Luke records Jesus warning the disciples to keep it to themselves. Now, if I were, if I were among the disciples, I would, it would be this point when I had a question. Um, this point when I'd be like, hang on, Jesus, isn't this like Revolutions 101? Like, if we're going to succeed, we're going to need to win, and we really need to win, then we need that crowd. In fact, we don't just need a crowd, we need to turn that, that mob into an army. Now, I wasn't there, and I think the disciples had a bit more wisdom than me in keeping it to themselves just for a, bit, a minute longer. But uh, Jesus doesn't end there. Listen to his words in verse 22. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. This suddenly doesn't look like winning, does it? Note the repeated word must as well. There's no avoiding this for Jesus. You know, the disciples are thinking that they're on this roller coaster that's only ever going to go up. But uh, Jesus has set himself on a path that plummets lower than they could have imagined. I think back a couple of weeks ago to verse 6, and the disciples have been doing this powerful ministry, proclaiming Jesus' kingdom, healing the sick. Jesus commanded serious crowds. He's, he's done serious miracles in front of them and others. But Jesus knows what is ahead of him and what is ahead of them. And he needs them to have their eyes wide open as they go forwards. Because understanding who Jesus is shapes whether they will follow him at the end or not. You see, when, when the disciples looked at Jesus, they were looking at Jesus with what some people in the past have called a theology of glory. I'm going to call it like a theology of winners. Okay, They've got this theology of victory. And Jesus knew that if they kept that, if they didn't change their thinking about him, then they wouldn't last. Jesus wanted to turn their theology of winners into a theology of losers. Because that's what the crucifixion meant. The crucifixion meant losing 
the crucified were losers. And if the disciples were going to follow Jesus to the end, then they were going to need to make sense of a crucified Messiah. I think that maybe there's a danger in a, in a country and a point in history that's been so shaped by the life and the ministry of Jesus that we don't see this as shocking enough. But this would have been absolutely seismic. I, put it into perspective. I just imagine like this scenario. Imagine you're getting home after church this afternoon and an old friend who you've fallen out of touch with for years reaches out to you out of the blue. You catch up and you tell them what's new about your life. And then they say to you, you know, they say, listen, this is going to sound a bit weird, but I've met this guy. Now he's on death row, but he's been making some really interesting points. And in fact, I'm, pre I'm pretty sure he's the king. The, the king, you, you say, trying to keep some wobble out of your voice and maybe wondering if there's a special number that you've got to call uh, for conversations like these. You know, the, 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 the king of England? Don't be silly. They say, this guy is the king of the king of England. And he's going to take over the world just after they execute him. Now, if this condemned criminal could do anything like he said he could do, we would be horrified. We would be terrified. Fortunately, you and I both know that right now there is no hope for that person to do any of that, to enact any of that change. He's a loser. A delusional loser at that. Imagine the scandal of pinning your hopes to this guy. Imagine telling your friends about this guy. Imagine writing and singing songs about him. Jesus is telling Peter this because he needs this to know this about Jesus if he's going to stick it out to the end. And it's not just Peter who needs to know it, is it? You need to hear this. I, I need to hear it. Listen to what Jesus goes on to say in verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. You notice that word must again. There's no other road than the one that Jesus walks. There's no other way for Jesus and his people than the way of the cross. And guys, if you're anything like me, this is going to be particularly hard to hear. Because we're hardwired, aren't we, to choose for ourselves the easiest road. To choose for ourselves comfort at any cost that Jesus would have us deny ourselves. He would have us say no to things that we want to say yes to. He would have, have us not choose things that we really want to do. He would have us to take up our cross daily. He would have us say yes to things that we really want to avoid. And he would have us take on that theology of losing that he embodied. And not just once, but daily, every single day. And he would have us follow him. He'd have us do all of this because in this he is no less God's Messiah. He is no less God's King. But to be disciples of the King of Kings, then we must follow in his footsteps. And guys, here's the question that my mind raises at this point. Is this me? Is this what marks out my life? If self, is self-denial a characteristic of my personal and spiritual life, of my relationships, of my finances, 
What about you? What about you? Because if I'm honest, this is a really difficult question for me to ask of myself, let alone everybody here. <laughs> but it is essential that we talk about this. Not just because Jesus was crystal clear about it here, but because honestly, I think that what can happen too many times is that people do not hear this when they hear the gospel. People do not hear the cost of following Jesus. And then when ministry gets tough, when life goes, when life goes belly up, can we really blame them for wondering if they've been led up the garden path? Like, maybe this is you today. It might be that you've arrived at church asking that very question. Have I been misled? If that is you, I want you to know, if you have been, Jesus hasn't misled you. Jesus hasn't been too embarrassed to tell you the difficult thing. As with everything else, Jesus has been completely honest and has been willing to say the hard thing, the thing it would be painful for us to hear. He's been clear from the start, you do not get to glory without going along the way of the cross. And he's been clear, not just because he's a controversialist, not because he likes to say shocking things to get a reaction out of people, but he knows that we need to get Jesus right because who we think of Jesus will shape whether we're going to follow him to the end or not. Jesus is clear. Whoever wants to be his disciple must follow him in the way of the cross. I think it's appropriate to ask ourselves as a church, how are we doing here? Are we willing to follow in the way of the cross? Are we willing to take up our cross daily? Not just willing to lay out down our lives for Jesus in one big go, but to kind of do it every single day, day after day. Are we willing to seem weird or to make choices that the world would consider weird or maybe even shameful and condemnable? Are we willing to follow him, not just as this kind of mechanism to victory and to the good life in this life, but actually being willing to take on that theology of losers for ourselves? Or are we actually at risk of being ashamed of Jesus and his words like he warns us about in verse 26. And I don't think that's just about shying away from difficult conversations. Um, but actually, are we in danger of being ashamed of the very way of the cross? And the truth is, I think we all are kind of there somewhere, aren't we? Some of us might be wondering right now if being a follower of Jesus is even worth it. But believe it or not, if you are wondering that question, I think that you're asking the kind of questions that Jesus wants you to ask. And he wants you to ask this because he knows the answer. He knows that what will keep us walking along the path of the cross is this. The way of the cross is the path to glory. The way of the cross is the path to glory. You can see this a bit in Jesus' promise of the arrival of the kingdom of God in verse 27, here's God's king announcing the coming of his kingdom. Very, I think very clever people disagree over exactly what Jesus is talking about here, but I think what we can safely say is he's describing a new age in which the humiliation of the cross is transformed into glory for Jesus. And some of the very people who he was speaking to in this moment, in this passage, would have seen this moment when God raises him, not just from the dead, but into glory. So at the right hand of the Father, 
This is Jesus' promise to his disciples and to us. If we're willing to follow, if we're willing to follow Jesus in the way of the cross, then that is the path to glory. And as difficult as the Christian life can be, as much as we can find ourselves shrinking away from self-denial, Jesus assures us of his coming kingdom, his glorious kingdom. And if we know that to be true about him, then we're gifted with an understanding of who Jesus is and what he's come to do and where he's taken us that will keep us going when the Christian life gets difficult. I think that means two things for us, really. Firstly, I think it means that when we're feeling weary, we can take heart because you are on the path to glory. There'll be many of us here, I think, this morning feeling weary and feeling the weight of taking up their cross this morning. I think Jesus has good news for you today. Maybe you've made some decisions about what job you're going to take or about where you're going to spend your money or where you're going to live your life. That, maybe that's made some of your more sensible relatives raise more than one eyebrow, maybe. All for the sake of investing in, in Jesus' kingdom. And, and now, actually, you're not sure if you've seen a lot of fruit and you're maybe wondering if those relatives were right all along. Um, well, Jesus says, take heart, because he, hasn't, he might not have promised you an instant win, but he has promised that your decisions mark you out as a disciple of his and a citizen of his kingdom. Or maybe you're single, and actually you know for a fact that if you weren't limiting yourself, if you weren't denying yourself, the possibility of a relationship maybe with somebody who wasn't a Christian, then you know that would be different. And it's a bit wearying, isn't it, to keep saying no to something that you want, and everyone around you just saying yes. Jesus says, take heart. He says that his disciples are those who deny themselves. His disciples have a glorious kingdom ahead of them. And actually, as I say these things, I think that maybe there's some people here whose heart might sink when they hear Jesus' words in verse 26, and they're wondering if their life really does look like, it looks like Jesus' description of the disciple after all. I think we can take heart as well, because this is a king who came not just to triumph over Roman oppression, but over your sin. He carries it with him on his cross, and he bears it himself. The path of the cross is the path of forgiveness. I, I, what I'm really worried about people hearing today is that the title of disciple belongs to a certain kind of person only. I really don't want you to hear that. You know, not the kind of person who's you know, never afraid to speak up for Jesus or the kind of person who never gets flustered or muddled. If that were true, all we're doing actually is we're replacing one theology of winning for another. And Jesus is clear. The way of the cross is for the weak, the afraid and the failures. It's for the losers. Are you willing to give Jesus that failure and that weakness? Because if you are, then Jesus says there's room for you in his kingdom and what greater testimony to the way of the cross than for Jesus to take you, your and my failure and weakness and to transform it into something glorious. I said at the start, I think that what Jesus said in this passage is hard to hear. It's not an easy saying. And actually, there's also going to be some people here who's going to, I think, finding it a difficult truth to swallow. And if that's you, then you're not on your own. You stand in the great company of the disciples before you. 
And Jesus speaks these words for your sake. And if it's not you right now, if, that's, if you're not there, then you will be. So I think it's essential that we all listen to Jesus' challenge to us. Which is that when you're convinced that winning is king, take up your cross because it is the only way to glory. Jesus is calling his followers to a way of life that cuts against the theology of winning and victory and glory for ourselves. And he's calling his followers to rethink how they see success in the light of the cross. He's inviting them and us to join him on a journey that that looks to all of the rest of the world like a failure. Let me ask us all this question now. What would it look like for us here today to radically reimagine our lives, radically reimagine what a life well lived would look like? Where does the world's vision for a successful life come head to head with Jesus' cross-shaped life for you and for me? And as we ask ourselves that question, don't be surprised if it starts to feel painful. Because Jesus is calling us to let go of this theology of winning that we hold tightly to, and that's going to mean letting go of other things. But there's also something really solid that we can take hold of at the same time. When we let go of our theology of winning, when we let go of the world's understanding of a life well lived, we have this incredible opportunity to take hold of the vision of life the way that Jesus sees it. So let me ask again, if the cross of Jesus continued to transform our perspectives, what dreams could you start dreaming about how you could spend your life? What dreams might we as a church be able to dream together that might look like absolute foolishness to the rest of the world, but embrace Jesus' cross-shaped vision? If if you were to go all in on Jesus' cross-shaped life, what would that look like for you? If that feels difficult, why not ask yourself, what is competing with that vision? What's threatened when you become willing to lose the world in order to save your very self in Jesus' kingdom? Where's where's self-denial really going to sting? Because Jesus promises us that what awaits those who walk in his way is a glorious kingdom. And we can trust him because he's already walked that road for us. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples, he called them to trust him and his promises that after the cross came glory. And we have the privilege of not having to wait to find out what happened. We know that Jesus walked the way of the cross right to the end. We know that Jesus is good on his word, not just in his challenges to us, but in his promises that as three days later, God raised him from the dead into glorious life. And you know something, this made all the, all the difference to the disciples. These men were, they went from forgetful and fearful, buckling under the pressure when it really mattered, to witnesses who boldly and gladly took up their crosses to make Jesus known. In the case of some, including Peter, literally. And what changed? Is that they met the risen Jesus. In chapter 1 of this book, Luke tells us he wrote these things down so that we could have certainty about who Jesus is. And if we know that they're true of Jesus, we can trust him enough to walk the way that he walked. So as I finish, I've got one more thing to say. I think there's a right and a wrong way to, to respond to a passage like this. 
And what I would hate to happen is for all of us to leave here with just this greater burden on us to do more and, and to be better. There's more, more stuff to do than we have good news of Jesus to sustain us. I think God has given us the church so that when we face the challenge of living life in light of the cross, we do not do it on our own. When we sing together in a minute, we are holding out to one another the beautiful hope of the cross of Christ that saved us and transforms us. When we gather as gospel families this week, we bear each other's burdens together so that we don't walk the way of the cross alone. But beyond that and before it, God has given us his son God has sent his son to purchase for us the life that should only have ever belonged to Jesus. Paul writes this in Galatians 6. He says, May I never boast in, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. If, if everything that we've been thinking about feels a little impossible right now, that, know this, Jesus died to make this a reality for you. In no way does the cross begin, continue, or end in our power. So as we fail, as we experience firsthand the weakness and our inability to walk the way that Jesus walked, remember that this isn't separate from the way of the cross. And so let's return to him in our weakness and our failure. And by doing that, find ourselves once again on the path to Jesus' glorious kingdom. Shall we do that now as I pray? Lord Jesus, each day we battle to come to you, not in our own strength, but in weakness. And weak as we are, we, we want to recognize that we can't even do that without your help. And so we ask together, as a church family, that you would change our perspectives, that you would move in our hearts, and that you would work in us that in our lives together as a church, in our own context, wherever we find ourselves in the week, we would reflect your reality with greater and greater clarity. And so that you might sustain us all the way to the end. We pray this in your name. Amen.